This podcast is brought to you by the IIEA, sharing ideas, shaping policy. Thanks very much, everybody. I think we'll um, we'll start. Are we okay to start, Lorcan? And we're not bang exactly on three. Yeah. So um, welcome everybody uh, to this um, IIEA uh, event. Um, I won't call it absolutely a webinar because of course we're delighted to be joined by people here in the room so we've got people in person and we've got people online so we've got a combination uh, hybrid so welcome to you uh, whether you're watching viewing from your sitting room or your office or, or here in the uh, room with us in Norway Georgia Street uh, we're really really delighted to be joined by a most distinguished um, guest speaker and um, Professor Michael O'Flaherty who is um, as you know director of the EU Fundamental Rights Agency and um, as I say we're, we're um, we're pleased to have Michael here and uh, thank you in advance for giving us your time this afternoon um, to speak to us for maybe about 20 or 25 minutes or so uh, as you choose in or around that time and then uh, we'll have an opportunity for some questions. Uh, I sometimes say questions or observations but it's, it's a, you know it's uh, we like questions but we tolerate observations as well um, and we'll do that once Michael has finished his intro introductory remarks. If you're here in the room it's easy enough you put up your hand Preferably tell us who you are, and if you have an organization, uh, you might just give us that designation, just so as we know. And if you're online, use the Q&A function on Zoom, which everybody's very familiar with at, at this stage. Again, telling us who you are and what your designation is, if, uh, if, if relevant, or if appropriate, if you have one. Um, and you can send in questions if something might occur to you, even the first few minutes as Michael's speaking, please, you can put the question in there, particularly, obviously, if you're online, and th those questions will build up and we'll get to them. The Q&A is on and the uh, presentation are both on the record. Um, you can use Twitter as well if you're uh, that way inclined. The handle is at IIEA. And we'll be uh, live. We are live streaming uh, this, this afternoon's discussion. So uh, welcome if you're joining from that particular uh, on that particular platform as well. It's great to have you um, with us. Michael O'Flaherty is director of the EU Agency for Fundamental Rights, as I've said. Previously, uh, many of us will have known Michael, um, he was established professor of uh, human rights law and director of the Irish Centre for Human Rights at, the NU at NUI Galway, the National University of Ireland in Galway. He has served as chief commissioner of the Northern Ireland Human Rights Commission, um, a member of the UN Human Rights Committee and head of a number of UN human rights field operations. Um, he's going to uh, talk to us, um, uh, broadly speaking today on the topic, protecting human rights in the digital age. And there is so much happening and there are so many developments that it's almost overwhelming to try to keep it. We just had a session at lunchtime on energy and retrofitting, and we had cause to touch on artificial intelligence and the impact that it's likely to have in the energy sector. I was at something yesterday morning uh, in relation to the health sector, and we can see the enormous advances in potential associated with artificial intelligence in the health sector, but all of them have associated uh, questions and uh, um, um, risks um, for um, individual rights, human rights. And I know Michael will touch on some of those um, issues in his presentation, but without anticipating it any further and without telling you that he's going to say things that he's going to deal with things that he doesn't end up wanting to talk about, I will hand the floor to Michael. Thank you very much. <laughs> Alex, thank you very much indeed. I really appreciate the invitation. It's my second time physically to speak here and the third time if you include a virtual event during COVID, but it's always a great pleasure. I want to thank 
I, I, I want to thank not only the IIEA, I always feel like it's an elocution class when I do that, uh, but thank you to the IIEA, thank you to you who, who are here physically, and thanks to everybody who's with us online. Friends, um, a good few years ago, I was sitting on a hotel terrace looking across the lawn. And as I sat there, I became aware of a little machine uh, going up and down the grass, uh, cutting it. It was my first encounter with a robot lawnmower. And I watched it transfixed for a good half an hour. And so it went up and down and up and down. And at a certain point, I began to feel sorry for it. That um, it was doing this job with no gratitude, no recognition, uh, no encouragement. I had to restrain myself from going over to pat it. Um, but what I remember about that moment, above all, is a genuine sense of awe. It was my first encounter with robotic technology in any meaningful way, uh, and I was deeply impressed. Uh, now, much has moved on uh, since that first encounter, but I never ceased to be in awe of AI and its potential uh, for human thriving and well-being. I was on the island of Lampedusa five days ago uh, to get a better understanding of what was happening with this huge arrival of asylum seekers. That's it's a live issue right now. The situation is dreadful. I, I'm not going to pretend otherwise. But uh, the Italian authorities and civil society were using tech to try and put some order on the chaos. And it was deeply impressive. Uh, uh, the way AI-driven uh, technology uh, was helping them to, to some extent, cope with what is an impossible situation. Again, AI for good, something I found awesome. But of course, given where I work at the EU Fundamental Rights Agency, I'm no less aware of the risks that AI poses for us and for our societies. And through the work of the agency, let me illustrate just illustrate, just give you examples of five contexts where AI can get it so badly wrong. The first is the well-known one of discrimination. AI hoovers up every fact, every datum uh, in, in our world uh, with all of the, uh, the discriminations, the hatreds, the biases to be found in, that, uh, in the data. And this is well-known, nothing new to say it now, other than the extent to which the... Um, the beyond uh, mistakes uh, or biases in data, there's also the astonishing extent to which data is mistaken. Uh, we've researched this in our agency, for instance, looking at large scale uh, uh, data sites uh, in the migration context, where the level of error is truly shocking, uh, really consequential stuff, like putting the age of an adult for a child. Uh, with all of the consequences for the child of being registered as an adult. So it's about bias, it's about mistake, and it's also about something very specific to tech, and that is the, uh, the, the role of feedback loops and the extent to which feedback loops can, 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 can enlarge error and enlarge mistake uh, over time and practice. Uh, we've looked at that in the context of online content moderation, automated content moderation. And we've seen how a, 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 a piece of technology that begins benign and does its job relatively well can learn error and then expand the error uh, with, with some pretty remarkable consequences. Uh, just to give you an example, we recently did research on online content automated online content moderation, where we developed algorithms and then tested language uh, to see what would happen 
by the way, again, it's well known to everybody in lesser known languages. It was a disaster, but that's well known. But in English, we put in terms. So we put in the term, I hate Jews. And the online uh, tech did its job. It flagged this as problematic speech, exactly what it was intended to do. But then my colleagues put in the words, I hate Jews love. And the stupid machine uh, passed over the term. It didn't flag it as problematic because of the power of the word love and of the associations of the word love, which somehow, according to the machine, uh, overrode the I hate part of the phrase. So again, an example of a unique, something rather specific to the online sphere in terms of how error can multiply. So that's the first worrying area, discrimination and all that's related. The second has to do with the fact of who dominates the tech world, the private sector. There's nothing inherently wrong with the tech world uh, owning technology, uh, but there's something inherently worrying when that is in the context of something that is so profoundly impacting our lives. And in a context where, again, we know through our research, uh, uh, what are the primary drivers for much of the private sector uh, in this in the development and advancement of a technology which has such a huge impact for every single person uh, here today. Uh, one important driver is efficiency. Uh, we again, through research, uh, concluded that the that the most important motivation for investment in technology is to do things quicker and more efficiently. There's again, nothing wrong with that. But if you think of what that could be at the expense of, uh, that then we see a worry. Another driver, no surprise, is profit. And again, that, that can be of some worry in the context of the impact on our lives. And then a third driver, among a few others, I suppose, is um, the idea that the private owner of technology has of establishing some idiosyncratic world goal. Uh, and I don't need to give examples. They're pretty replete right now. I liked Fintan O'Toole's reference this morning in the Irish Times to a certain man-child who comes to mind when you think of the use of tech to follow a very personal vision of what the world should look like. So the second concern, the role of the private sector. The third, the third concern is the exact converse, and that's the uh, extent to which AI enhances the power of the state. Um, again, not inherently problematic, at least if you're not in a state uh, that, is, um, uh, that does not respect democracy. Uh, but again, I don't need to give examples. Uh, it's perfectly obvious how tech in the wrong state hands can be a tool for repression and oppression. The fourth of the uh, five concerns uh, I, I would like to just illustrate my worries with is the somewhat more apocalyptic one uh, of the transfer or the outsourcing of decision-making uh, to artificial intelligence. Uh, one could give very many examples here, but again, the obvious one, it's well rehearsed, it's not uh, unfamiliar, is autonomous weapon systems, which of course uh, should, can, does, and should strike fear into the heart of anybody uh, who's concerned about the well-being of our world. And then the fifth of these illustrative examples of, of why we should be worried is it, it something a little bit harder to pin down. It's, it's, it's broad, but it's the erosion that we've come to understand over time, the erosion through the application of AI of our social solidarity, the degradation uh, of the human community in the sense uh, that so often today and far more likely in the future, we're dealing with a machine, not with a person. 
So often uh, what is pre presented to us as our preference has been decided by a machine, not a person, certainly not by me, uh, and so on. And uh, the um, finally, in recent times, psychologists and others are speaking of the risk to mental health uh, of this, uh, uh, this phenomenon uh, of the automation of life. So the um, concerns such as these inevitably lead us very quickly to the question of how we tame technology. If we all accept that we need to tame this awesome power that has been developed, um, what should that look like so that the technology is in the service of human well-being? There are a few frames of reference for how we begin a discussion of how we tame tech, but two of the most prominent are through the invocation of the language of ethics on the one hand and the language of human rights on the other. Now, it's very good that this is the starting point for most. Look at Ireland's AI strategy, and it indeed uh, locates the reflection on the future of AI uh, in the context of the application of ethics and respect for human rights. This is all very welcome. Uh, but there are some concerns in there. And those of us who work in human rights have been taken aback, maybe not taken aback, but uh, disappointed by the extent to which the ethical discourse has until now, and I would argue still dominates, um, as if somehow the ethics and the human rights approaches were contesting uh, and we must, um, we must fight our corner so that uh, we dominate. And to some extent, ethics has been the more successful. I don't have time to go into why, uh, again, just very briefly, um, one can't help but think that ethics is an inherently subjective area where uh, my sense of right and good does not have to be the same as your sense of right and good. And therefore, using ethics to frame the taming of technology uh, allows us a tool which is malleable, which can, be, which can be sent in certain directions to achieve certain outcomes. This is not to diminish the importance of ethics. It's more to understand why it has dominated as the discourse. Turning to the other frame of reference, human rights. Uh, here we see something rather more, rather different, a far more, if I may put it like this, a far more sturdy uh, 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 infrastructure on which to base standards and practice. Uh, the um, I'll give you some examples of that in just a second, but my concern, as you'd imagine, as somebody working for an agency of fundamental rights, is to ensure that that human rights frame is, is put at the center, not to displace ethics, there's not a competition, but put at the center to help us figure out a, a, an appropriate and useful way forward. Um, and when we do that, what we're actually seeking to do is to take the rhetorical reference to human rights that you will find in almost every strategy on human rights that you can read, to take the rhetoric of human rights and turn it into a reality. What would that look like in practice? But before I get to the reality of what a human rights approach would look like in practice, allow me just a brief word on human rights more generally. Uh, we celebrate the 75th anniversary this year of the adoption of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Uh, the best effort by humanity uh, coming out of the horrors of the Second World War to define the minimum standards uh, for a society where we could thrive and mutually respect each other. The Universal Declaration has been repeatedly reaffirmed universally. 
uh, this year we're celebrating the 30th anniversary of uh, something called the Vienna World Conference on Human Rights, which was a solemn rededication of every country on earth uh, to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and what it stands for. Uh, uh, the universality of an instrument that was not just stated to be universal uh, from the outset, but was of course universally negotiated. It emerged from, uh, from complex global negotiations that reflected the different uh, world ways of thinking. It's a very subtle and sophisticated uh, uh, system that has derived from the Universal Declaration and all the treaties that followed. Notwithstanding popular misconceptions, it is rarely about absolutes. It's actually pretty, um, pretty insightful in the way it allows rights to be limited in the interests of the public good. We saw that for sometimes for good and sometimes maybe a bit too enthusiastically in the context of COVID. But that period neatly illustrates the extent to which the human rights system accommodates uh, uh, extraordinary crisis and issues in the, and in the public good allows for the restriction of rights. So it's a subtle system. Uh, it's very well supported, it could be better, but it's well supported nationally and internationally by courts and oversight systems. Uh, the uh, Universal Declaration is incorporated into domestic law of many countries around the world, therefore national courts uphold it um, through various systems since then, the European Union and others, uh, uh, the European Convention is, is relied on, is invoked, uh, these rights play an important part in the Irish courts, and of course internationally. Uh, we have the European Court of Human Rights. We have, the, to some extent, you could describe as a human rights court, the International Criminal Court. And we have the myriad monitoring bodies of the different organizations. Um, it's a system, these human rights standards, which is immediately relevant uh, in the context of AI. Uh, to use the phrase that's often invoked in the UN, human rights apply as much online as offline. So there's no jurisdictional dispute about its application in this context. And very importantly, as I said earlier, it's binding on states. Unlike ethics, it's not a voluntary take it or leave it. A buffet, I'll take that, I'll leave that. Uh, it is all binding. And it has as its goal, and this is its beauty and its power, it has its goal, human well-being. Article one of the Universal Declaration des describes human rights as being about delivering for that all people are free and equal in dignity and in rights. So there's this astonishing, uh, sometimes described as humanity's, uh, modernity's greatest achievement, this astonishing achievement of our societies. Uh, and the question arises of why it has been so peripheral uh, to the discussion about the uh, restraining, the taming of artificial intelligence. There are many reasons for this. Uh, I've alluded to some already, but one that's very important and has preoccupied my agency for the last seven years, maybe eight, it has been that we have failed to show in concrete grilled down manners how the human rights standards and systems apply in the AI context. We've been great on the rhetoric. We've not been so good uh, on the drilled down, um, this is what it would look like in practice. And so drawing on, drawing on a work of the, my agency, I'd like to leave you today briefly, I hope, with seven elements of what the drilled down look would be like uh, in the specific context of the now of AI. And by that, I'm referring to this regulation building moment. We're in the law writing moment for artificial intelligence. It's very exciting. 
if, if we get it right, it's crucial that we get it right, uh, but we could get it wrong. Uh, and when I talk about the law building moment, I'm referring in particular to the development in the EU of the AI regulation, the AI Act, which is still a draft, it's still a process, incomplete, and the less developed but ongoing process at the Council of Europe of the development of an international treaty on uh, artificial intelligence. So what are the what are seven of the things, the key things that the drafters of all such laws must keep in mind? And let me suggest those to you. The first is that we have to make sure that our laws uh, are comprehensive, that we develop loophole-free regulation. What would that look like in practice? Well, in the first place, it means we've got to get a broad definition of AI. We can't so reduce the definition that we skip out on loads of uh, practical applications. There's a risk that we would narrowly define to exclude such things as the databases on our borders, uh, because they're very basic AI and they could be missed if we go for an over-sophisticated definition. We have to make sure that our regulations equally apply to the private and public sectors. Again, a given you might say, but there is in some context, some pressure uh, to exclude the private sector. So lock in regulation on the state, uh, but leave a, a liberality for the private sector. When we lock in the private sector, we have to lock in all of the private sector. Again, in current discussions in some places, there's an argument that we should only do heavy regulation of big tech. But the analogy that I use is housing building regulations. Wouldn't it be a funny world where little houses didn't have to comply with regulations, but big houses did. I mean, it's just the roof is as likely to fall on you in a little as in a big house. Um, another, another, um, another concern has to be that we ensure that all of the impacts on human, on human well-being that we can identify are somehow captured by the regulation. This um, uh, converted into human rights terms, this means that regulation must embrace standing up for all of your human rights, not just certain of your rights. Most of the discussion until now has been protecting your privacy rights. And this is completely normal because it's all about data. And uh, the first thing that comes to mind is privacy uh, with regard to our data. Uh, so yes, we need to focus on privacy, but on so much more. Um, look, for example, at where the scandals have emerged in recent years around AI. I think of the social welfare scandal in the Netherlands a couple of years ago, where thousands of people uh, were, were, were ordered to recoup large sums of money to the state uh, that they were allegedly erroneously paid. Um, and, it was, and, and the bias was massively against people from ethnic minorities. And the whole thing was based on an erroneous application of an algorithm. So again, every aspect of our life can be engaged. So that was in broad terms and quite a lot of elements, the need to have loophole free regulation. The second thing that's essential if we're to meaningfully protect our human rights in tech law uh, is that, it, that this law provide for human rights compatibility testing for high risk applications. Uh, it's imperative that where a, a, an application is of high risk for human well-being, that it be tested so that we can understand what the risk is and manage it. Now, there's two very important considerations here. Uh, one is uh, with the uh, with the explosion of a general application AI, uh, we're reminded that testing of AI must be use case based. Uh, it's it's not good enough to test. 
the app the day it leaves the factory, uh, uh, regardless of how it's used. We have got to test it in the use context because only there will we see the risk to human well-being. The second dimension, and again, we know this from our research, is that and because of this phenomenon of feedback loops and the manner in which mistakes can multiply and grow over time in the application of technology, testing needs to be repeated. Um, you cannot get into your use context, test once, and assume all will be well forever. Uh, the science has now emerged to show that that is not guaranteed. The third dimension of effective uh, oversight has to do with the need for, uh, for effective regulation, excuse me, has to do with the need for strong oversight. Again, it might seem obvious, uh, but uh, it's very important that attention be paid uh, to ensuring that the systems in place to oversee the regulation are adequate to the job. They need to have the skills, they need to have the resources. If they're protecting human rights, we need human rights specialists working within those systems, not just privacy people, but all human rights. Um, we, also, um, we also need oversight at scale for the scope of the challenge. Uh, I get a sense as I travel around Europe that it hasn't dawned yet on the designers of systems quite how broad and uh, demanding uh, will be the oversight uh, that, that will have to be put in place. The fourth of my uh, seven uh, is with regard to a fundamental principle of human rights uh, that every violation should come with a remedy. Uh, and so therefore we need to make sure whether in the regulations we design to tame AI or in separate legislation, which is the EU model right now, that we ensure that there is a pathway to a remedy for somebody who's, 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 uh, uh, whose human dignity has been violated uh, by an application of the technology. And then the fifth, which could have been my first and could have been my last, uh, uh, because it's so absolutely central to the delivery of all of the other dimensions, is ensuring transparency. The, um, it is vital uh, for proper oversight, a proper monitoring of technology, that there is transparency as to the contents of the technology. Only then can there be effective oversight. Now, as you can imagine, this demand for transparency is, is met with a lot of resistance. I'll give you two examples. One is, it's just not possible. We don't know how the tech reaches that good outcome. So don't touch it. I've heard that many times. I've heard that at a medical conference that's from a doctor, a research, researching medical doctor who made more or less exactly the remark I just made. And we would argue that that's just not good enough. Um, we, we, we recognize that there may be huge complexity in, in, in terms of effective delivery of transparency, but at a minimum in the context of tech where we don't know how it works, uh, what on earth is to, discop, dis, to stop us demanding that you, the designer of the tech, that you describe what you do, uh, that you tell us how you've tested your technology, that you show us what data you've entered into your technology. We're already a long way at that point uh, towards what we need for oversight. A second, even less convincing argument about transparency is it's a secret. We can't tell you. Um, and I'm not referring here to commercial secrets. I'm referring, for example, to national security secrets. And again, here, it's really, it's a false argument. 
because in many other sectors over generations, we have found ways to put in effective oversight of highly sensitive contexts in a manner that does not compromise secrecy, does not compromise confidentiality. I think, for example, of the way in which we have designed judicial oversight of national security systems. And so by analogy, we have plenty of examples to counter that objection. The sixth of my seven considerations uh, is with regard to the need for continuous dialogue. Dialogue is not just a good, it's a necessity. Uh, as we continue to work our way forward in, in this whole new world, we need everybody on board to figure out the right way to go. And so in the design of the regulations, in the rollout of the regulations, in the application of them, uh, in their future amendment, it, it must be all on the basis of a rich living dialogue across all of the relevant stakeholders. There are many of them, uh, but let me today uh, focus on civil society. Uh, by the way, as a general observation, I've yet to find a single human rights innovation that didn't begin with civil society. But more narrowly, coming back to the AI context again, we would be lost today if it wasn't for the uh, shout outs and the, um, the, the, the warnings and the advocacy of civil society so far. It has done an astonishing job in educating us all, including people like me, uh, as to the scale of risk and the need for high attention. And so uh, involving civil society uh, for its, um, its advocacy function, but also its expertise is critical. There are many other civil society actors, but let me just mention one cluster uh, that I think is neglected, and that is the cluster of national human rights authorities. Uh, in the jargon, we say national human rights institutions. Here in Ireland, that would refer to the uh, Irish Human Rights and Equality Commission. Uh, but these bodies everywhere need to be involved as well. They are the centers of human rights expertise uh, unique centers of human rights expertise in our societies, they have to be also part of the conversation. Now, just before I move off this point, and again, I've had much personal experience of this, and that is that um, dialogue can be very difficult. Uh, quite simply, we often all speak different languages, and we don't understand each other. Um, I learned this in a different context years ago, trying to talk to economists. They didn't understand me, and I didn't understand them. But I think it's even more challenging in the context of technology. Uh, why should a tech engineer be expected to understand my human rights language? Uh, why should I be expected to understand uh, his or hers? But we have to try. Uh, we, at least we have to find a common vocabulary uh, in, in which to engage with each other. And the seventh and the final of my considerations is not about something we must do, but something we must challenge. And that is that we have to challenge the very frequently invoked argument after somebody like me gives a talk like the one I've just given. Oh, great, fine and well, but that's going to stifle innovation. You're going to cut off innovation and China and all these other places are going to leap well ahead of us. Well, you know, that's easily said, but I challenge the proof of it. Um, we're not convinced at all. Um, we are able to ensure attention to human rights while still deeply respecting the need for innovation in our societies, in our, in, in, our, in our business world, wherever else it is. And here are some of the ways we can do it. One is the way we are currently developing regulation in Europe using a risk pyramid uh, model. Uh, to, cut it, to, 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 get, to, to express it very uh, briefly, the pyramid has the most risky stuff at the very top, banned. 
uh, then a very big band uh, area <laughs> range uh, of high risk applications, which are subject to quite tight regulation, uh, proposed to be subject to quite tight regulation. And then a vast space at the bottom of the period, uh, the pyramid with benign AI applications, the famous talking fridge sort of stuff, um, which, which nobody can find huge risk in uh, and, and, and which would be subject to a very minimal uh, 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 human rights oversight. The um, a second dimension of how we can um, make sure that innovation is not unduly restrained is by doing sandboxing uh, of the interplay of AI and uh, human rights. Never compromising human rights. They shouldn't be in play. They shouldn't be in negotiation, but just seeing uh, how you can actually do the fixes. And I very much welcome that the current Spanish pres presidency of the European Union is heavily promoting the concept of um, of, of, of ethical or normative sandbox uh, exercises. But again, as I say, such exercises, while very welcome, must never be at the expense of the standards. The standards are not in negotiation. The, um, and by the way, I would say also as my final argument to those who raise the innovation argument is, well, you might want to think of the trust argument. Uh, because uh, there's no doubt, and I've yet to see anybody convincingly uh, push back against uh, the view that a strongly human rights compliant, human rights respected AI that is ultimately targeted to human thriving is going to be the most trustworthy AI, trusted by consumers, by citizens, by everybody in our societies. Uh, and I'd be firmly of the view that in the long game, it's the trustworthy AI that will ultimately win out. Now, dear friends, uh, I, I, before you put your questions or your observations, I'd much prefer observations, they're easier. Um, but before you do that, uh, I, I'm sure some of you here or online think that I'm naive and unrealistic. Uh, and I, I accept that I could, I could indeed look like that and sound like that, but I feel that I have no choice. The game is just too serious. Uh, AI is profoundly impactful for human thriving uh, and there is no better shared pathway uh, for uh, 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 to respect humanity than is human rights. Or to put it, let me finish up by putting it another way. Um, mm -hmm. I was in Brussels not so long ago and I had a bit of free time and I went to the Museum of Fine Arts. Uh, I, I wanted to revisit one of my favorite pictures in the world. It's Peter Bruegel's Daedalus and Icarus. Some of you might know it. It's, it's, it's a tiny little picture. It's not much bigger than the, the one up there of, of, of the Bank of Ireland. And it, um, it, it, um, it's famous for the fact that the, it's full of um, uh, shepherds shepherding their sheep, um, fisher pulling the fish out of the sea, um, people uh, plowing the land. Uh, and there's a turquoise sea in the background. And it's only after you study it for ages that you see these two little legs dangling uh, where somebody has just plunged into the water. The first time I saw it, I laughed out loud. I thought this was so funny. You know, it took ages for me to find Icarus, poor Icarus, who had landed in the sea and 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 you know would drown. But um, I thought of it for today's purpose for a different reason, which is how, why Icarus fell into the sea. You all know the the, the story. Um, Daedalus, his father, made him wings, uh, bound the feathers together with wax, and sent him off up. And in a um, in 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 great acts of hubris and self confidence, Icarus flew th too close to the sun. The uh, wax melted, and he plunged into the sea and drowned. 
And uh, it occurs to me that why did Icarus, why did this all happen to Icarus? It wasn't just hubris, but he had the wrong flight plan. Uh, and, 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 and that brings me back to AI, because I would have suggested that if we, if we substitute for Icarus AI, and we give it the flight plan of human rights, then I believe that AI indeed can soar up to the sun and can bring all of us with it. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by the IIEA, sharing ideas, shaping policy.